Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Dear ones, thank you so much today for joining us on the Our Resolute Hope podcast. John Russin here, the host, and I'm here with Pastor Frank Friedman. And my friend, it is a good day, despite the fact that there's so much pain in our lives. Mm. Well, John, God promises his goodness to us, even in the midst of tears, because of who he is to us and who we are to him. Though we may have tears, there is always triumph in our tears, because just like Jeremiah said, every morning brings new mercies, and every morning brings a new opportunity to experience the faithfulness of God on our behalf. And that transforms it into a good day, no matter what comes our way. That's a great, great reality. That's a great way to begin, my friend. And uh, friends, if you joined us for the first time, Frank and I are toward the end of a (laughs) several months long conversation on suffering. And last time, Frank, you recall, we talked about Mrs. Job. And Mm -hmm. we looked at her from a little different perspective, commenting on how hard it is to watch those we love endure suffering. And we mentioned that it's really a different kind of suffering on our part, a feeling of helplessness, and we're almost willing to try anything to stop the pain. Now, Frank, I'm going to ask you to make a few more comments on the desperate attempts we have to stop the pain. So take it over from here, my friend. Oh, John, thank you. In fact, I've had this discussion just almost weekly with people. Had it last week with a theologian from another state, and he brought it up. He says, we'll do anything to anesthetize not only our pain, but especially the pain of the ones we love. And we anesthetize, John, the first thing we think of is drugs and alcohol. But we can anesthetize in so many other ways, recreationalism, workaholism, sports, our children, any way we can to divert our minds and our hearts away from what we're experiencing, because we've kind of bought this lie that it will hurt too much if we do otherwise. And that lie, John, is really a slander against God. There is nothing in this world that will hurt too much for that which the grace of God cannot supply the life of God in the midst of what we're experiencing and have the power of his own life to walk through whatever valley we're in. But John, as we mentioned last time, some people buy that lie. It hurts too much to go on. And so we have this thing called euthanasia, 
where we try to end the sufferings of those we love. And we also have this thing called suicide, where we end our own suffering. And John, we referenced last time, and I hope our listeners hear this, we really don't like the term suicide. It's sterile, it's cold. It comes with a lot of judgment. And the word, the better word that we use in our book, Finding God in the Gray, The Lonely Path of Pain, is the word pain aside. That's really what's going on. And you made a great reference last time, John, to this idea of suicide, pain aside, being the counterfeit gospel. And I just want to make a couple of statements about that. The message of the gospel, John, is die and you'll be free. Be crucified with Christ. Recognize that you died with him, were buried with him, and have been resurrected with the ability to experience the resurrection power of God in your daily life. And Paul made reference to that in 2 Corinthians 1, where he was very honest. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant of what I'm going through. I am pressed beyond measure. I am out of strength. The trials and travails of this world have put a death sentence on me. And then he adds, but then I remembered God raises the dead. And then in chapter four, he adds, death comes at us every day so that, purpose clause, the resurrection life might explode out of us and overcome that experience of death. So the cross message is die and you'll be free because it leads to resurrection. Suicide, however, counterfeit gospel has the same message, die and you'll be free. But John, it's a destructive death, not a constructive. It's the termination of life, not resurrection life. And that's why suicide is so enticing to people. And so I'm glad we've come back to this issue. Thank you for the opportunity. Suicide is never the option. The cross is the option, uh, not a destructive death. Oh, yeah, you will be free. You'll, your pain will have ended, but you will leave so much pain for all those people left behind. Whereas constructive death, the death of the cross will always lead to resurrection life and the opportunity to share life as you experience life for yourself. We got to be careful with this issue when we talk about die and you'll be free. Yeah, you are so right, my friend. In fact, that's such a deep thought. I hate to go back to our, our topic of Job and suffering today because we can spend a while talking about that. And that might be a, a topic for a future couple episodes of our podcast. So thank you for that insight. Father, would you please open our eyes and open our ears so that we'll hear you if that's the direction that you want us to go. But today, my friend, we're going to pick up another group of others who are watching mm. Job suffering. And we're going to see how they respond. You know, we looked at how Mrs. Job responded last time. But these are Job's three friends. We find them in chapter two. And if I can pronounce their names correctly, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And Frank, as we start, I got to give them credit right from the start. Their friend was suffering, and they came hmm. to comfort, to console, and encourage. Frank, they got it right. And as I looked over this part of chapter two, 
I picked up on five things they did. See, this is the university lecturer coming out in me. Five things they did right. And I want to buzz through these. And then I'm going to ask you to comment on how collectively these five things make such a powerful impact in the lives of those who are suffering. The first one, they made an appointment together to come. We find this in verse 11. Mm. Frank, these three guys were purposeful. Mm-hmm. Their friend was their priority. They didn't say, oh, hey, I meant to call you. I just didn't get around to it. Hey, I hope you're doing okay. No, they had great intentions and they acted on their intentions. You know, they showed up. My goodness, Frank, they just showed up. Mm. How can we add more value to friends who just show up? Mm. And where do they show up, Frank? They didn't come to the Four Seasons Hotel downtown and invite Job to meet them. This is number two. They came to the dump where he was. These three were likely very wealthy, too, and they came from far distances. But they cast aside their sense of propriety, their reputations, and they just plopped down right where Job was. Wow. Mm. This is the third one, verse 12. They raised their voices, Frank, and they wept. And this is wailing in grief Mm. and shock. Basically, my friend, they embraced Job's suffering as if it were their own. Mm. Not sympathy, not empathy, but compassion. You know, compassion means to suffer together with someone. And that's what they did. And then, my friend, this is something you bring out all the time. Number four, they sat with him seven days and seven nights, and they did not say a word. (laughs) They didn't snap out of it. They didn't tell Job to snap out of it. They didn't try to cut his sorrow short. They didn't let him cry alone. They shared his suffering, and they were silent. (laughs) And then finally, after all this, we begin chapter three with this thought. They gave Job time to speak first, enough time for Job to work through the emotional pain, and then they let him open the conversation. Frank, as I look through all of this, this is a tremendous recipe for being a minister of life and comfort and compassion to friends who are desperately hurting, isn't it? Boy, John, those five things are... Huge. Yeah, they're pretty and... overwhelming, aren't they? You know, we <laughs> they could really spend an are. hour talking about these. Oh, yeah. I was very fortunate in my own life to experience number one. My father died very suddenly when I was about 19 and six kids under 17 in the home. And we buried him in another state where he was happiest. And of course, that meant that the family was kind of on their own outside of some of the relatives that still lived there. And on the morning of the funeral, John, I went out to get the paper and there was one of my friend's cars and four of my friends sleeping in the car. And I was like, what are you guys doing? And they said, well, we had to wait for this one to get off at midnight. And then we drove here, got here about 4.30 in the morning and it was too late. So we just slept in the car. I was blown away. They went to the funeral and then immediately drove back because one of them had switched shifts so that they would be able to work and pick up their shift. And boy, John, that spoke volumes. 
And it's really an amazing thing. You know, in our modern world, we have texts. I'm so sorry that happened. We have emails, but nothing speaks like presence. Yes. And those guys did a bang up job. And then coupled with that was the point you brought out that nothing speaks like silence. I think one of the grave mistakes we make is we try to fix people. And that's not our job. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul said that we are to comfort one another with the comfort that we receive from God. And comfort is not trying to fix someone. It's like you brought out this very important idea. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is so much better. It's trying to feel what they feel. But compassion is putting that into practice, putting it into action. It's the verb form. And what they did was huge. They just sat down with him. They didn't try to fix him. And in our new devotional, John, we chance to plug that. Oh, that's right. I was going to bring that up. You've got an entry in there, Frank, that we're still working on called the Ministry of Silent Presence. So take a moment if you can and explain the thrust of that little day's entry. I'll just do it real quick. I was asked to go to a, a hospital room where somebody was dying. They turned around and asked if I was a doctor. I told them I was from the chaplain's office. They basically looked at me and said, what can you do? And I mean, normally that would be the cue to exit. Yeah. (laughs) Chase me out of the room. Here's my card. Call me if you need me. But the spirit of God, John, and all glory goes to God, just made me sit down. And I sat there for 45 minutes until the girl finally turned around and brought up the issue that her dad was going to die. And that opened the door. And we were allowed the privilege of leading not only the dad, but the entire family to Christ. And it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't just sat down and shut up. <laughs> and boy, that is hard for a preacher to do. Oh, yeah. Uh, just <laughs> shut up. I remember. Just offer your presence. Yeah. And these guys, John, did it right. Yeah. And I'm glad you've pointed that out because, you know, in a lot of circles, these friends, we instantly jump to what they did wrong and forget that they did it right. And we can learn from them. Yes, we certainly can. And, you know, what Job's friends didn't do is what we often do. In the church, Mm. when we come across people who are suffering, and the first thing we want to do, of course, we want to make them feel better. So we tend to do something like this. We whip out our Bible like a Band-Aid and say, here, take two verses and call me in the morning. Yeah, You know, we say, hey, have you read Romans 8, 28? All things work together for good, brother. As they're standing over the news of a miscarried child. Or James 1-2, consider it all joy, brother. It's just so cold and callous and indifferent. And Frank, as I thought about this, we have got to be so very careful. Because of course we want their suffering to end. But sometimes, and I've examined myself and I saw this to be true as well, sometimes our desire to end their suffering can be rooted in our selfishness. We want them to heal quickly so our lives can return to normal. And boy, that's a subtle deception if we're not careful. Mm. We will leave people more wounded 
mm. than the event that caused the suffering, can't we? Mm. Yeah, John, I'm so glad you brought this up because this is a huge topic. And I don't see a lot out there in terms of how to minister to hurting people. And maybe that's a project we can pursue one day, but we'll introduce it here. We know that the truth sets people free. That is one of the most glorious verses in the Bible. But we earn the right to share the truth. And we also need to couple that with what Proverbs says, that it's the word that's spoken in due season. And when somebody is deeply in grief, that's not necessarily the season. I actually observed, John, a situation where a woman had lost her child. And I saw another person come to them with a great motive. Let me comfort you. I know that was their motive. But they put their arm around that lady and said, your child's in a better place. And that woman pushed the other person away and said, the better place is in my arms. How dare you? My goodness, John, I call that a spiritual slap. <laughs> you know, it's totally insensitive. And the sad thing is, John, I've done that to people. Yeah. And we need to learn I've not only done the abuse, because that's really what it is. It's spiritual abuse. But I've also meted out the spiritual slap. <laughs> and I'm not necessarily proud of it, but you wonder if it wasn't the right thing, because that's the only way people are going to learn. I remember when Avery was going through very difficult times, and I had an insensitive believer come up to me and say, you know, God is really going to get glory out of this child. And <laughs> I just snapped at them. And I said, well, how about he get a little glory out of your child? And yeah. they reared back and they were very shocked that something like that would have come out of my mouth. And, and I told them, I'm sorry, I apologize. But dear friend, you need to think and you need to learn about you know speaking the right word in the right season and this wasn't the right season no it was so. not well not to leave our three friends of job in their gloried success <laughs> i want to continue looking at how things panned out as the circumstances went on Frank, eventually their patience ran out with Job, and mm. we're not going to do a deep dive in reading all their conversations, but it's really very reflective because one thing that happened was though, even though they started out well, they didn't end well at all. In our commentary on Galatians, that should be out any day now. Galatians 6 says, do not grow weary in well-doing, but Frank, they grew weary. Mm. <laughs> they gave up. They got tired of Job's suffering. And they started pointing fingers of blame because it's hard to sit there in the midst of suffering and not have an answer. And hmm. I jotted down just three things they said. Eliphaz in chapter four says, hey, you know, Job, the innocent are never punished. Hmm. Bildad steps in in chapter eight. You know, Job, God doesn't reject blameless people. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, my goodness. You know, Zophar chapter 11. Hey, Job, put away the iniquity in your hand. So all these guys 
are so busy trying to defend God that he would never do this to a righteous person, even though chapter one tells us that Job was upright and righteous. They had no choice but to blame Job. And Frank, it's interesting. Job absorbs all this, and this is how he responds. He says this in chapter 16. He said, uh, you are miserable comforters. <laughs> wow. <laughs> What a slap oh. in Jesus' name. You are miserable comforters. Shall windy words have no end? You stink at making me feel better. This is John's translation. You yeah. stink at making me feel better, guys. You are nothing but a bunch of windbags. And boy, my friend, it is such an easy transition to go from sitting for seven days in silence to pointing fingers of cause and blame in the midst of suffering, isn't it? Mm. You know, Thomas, I'm listening to that. I get memories. Uh, you know, when you're in ministry for a long time, I remember a gentleman who lost his little girl at five years old to cancer. And he came to me one day bemoaning how somebody had come to him, trying to comfort him and said, you know, I want you to think about something, brother. What if God had preordained that little girl to have five years on this planet? And he said, now, who do I find that can give her the best five years? Oh, that family right there. And maybe you should start thinking about this, that God chose you guys to give her the best five years. And I won't tell you what this dear brother said <laughs> <laughs> to that person. Windless words, just windbags. John, I think really void of love. Yeah. How could you say things like that to people when their guts are being wrenched out? And this is where we have to keep telling people over and over again, John. I think the root of that is Genesis, where mankind has bought the lie that we shall function as God. And so we think it's our job to defend God, our job to fix people. And that's God's job. Yeah. Ours is to let his life flow through us in comfort and in love and in yeah. mercy and kindness. And that is just missed in the body of Christ, John. And I was thinking about this as you said this. In the physical realm, John, somebody gets a cancer, somebody breaks a leg. We give them time to heal. But when it comes to the emotional realm, for some reason, we think people should snap out of it because they have the truth. And I don't know why we don't give people time to heal emotionally, solically, when we realize we need to give people time to heal physically. That's a real disconnect, John. It certainly is. And you know, uh, Frank, when someone we love suffers, no matter how much insight we might have into Christ as our life or the way Father works, we don't really know what's going on. We get the blessing of reading the book of Job and father lifts the curtain and, and gives us a little insight as to what went on behind the scenes. Mm. But we don't really know 
what it's like to be them. We don't understand their anxiety, their fear. We don't understand the pain they're feeling. We don't understand the suffering. And to just step in and callously assume we do and cavalierly recommending a quick course of action to resolve their emotions and get them back on track is about the worst thing I can imagine doing. So my friend, I'm oh. going to ask you to, to wrap us up with your summary comments on my last words. Well, John, this is a summary to your heart. <laughs> Listening to you here at the end, I had something pop in my brain and Maybe we need to put this on our calendar and do a project like this, putting together a book or something on how to minister to hurting people. Because as I was listening to you, one of the things that popped in my mind just then was this comment that so many people give and so many hurting people, unfortunately, hear. This is the comment. I know how you feel. No, no they don't. don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Even if your child, if one of your children had a disease, like my daughter Avery, I come to you and I say, well, I know how you feel. No, I don't. I'm not you. I don't know what is going on in your soul. I don't know how the enemy is attacking you. I don't know your family history and the other pains that you've had to bear. I've really trained my mind to stop making that statement. And instead, I say to these people, I wish I knew how you felt in this moment so that I could respond to you in the way I need to respond. So maybe you can help me understand how you feel. And that's what I've been trying to do now, because that's a, a more subtle lack of love. It sounds really good, but it's deadly wrong, John. We don't know how somebody else feels. That's right. We don't. So. But the good thing, my friend, is that there is one there who knows go. exactly how we feel. There is one who feels every loss we feel because his life is ours. And he knows. Oh, gosh, Frank, he knows. Friends, this has been a tough episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. And uh, as we've talked through this, the recent tragedies in my old life have largely kept me in tears when it hasn't <laughs> been my turn to talk. But I trust Father with all of that suffering, and I lift it to Him, and I invite His truth in His life and His peace into my life and the life of my family as we walk through this dark valley. Uh, please check us out, ourresolutehope.com. You'll find us online. And Frank, probably more so than any other episode, this one captures the purpose of what Our Resolute Hope is all about. It's so in the midst of the nightmare, the trenches of life, you can find Jesus as you never knew him. So today and always, choose hope and choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you 
as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.